Welcome film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, and let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Welcome listeners to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We've talked a lot on previous episodes about different titles people use and uh, the way they define their role or position on film sets. And honestly, sometimes the best way to describe what a person does, what their role is, um, and then in this case, it even expands to define who that person really is, is to just keep it simple. Our guest today is a self-described cameraman. He has spent practically all of his life so far behind the camera, around cameras. I would not be surprised to find out if at one point he slept with his camera. Uh, And I think today is really going to be a treat for our listeners. Uh, We're going to take a fascinating ride on an interesting pathway through the career of, uh, of Rick Bravo. Rick's accolades, his experiences, and the things he's seen are uh, going to be so interesting for you to hear. I'm really excited for today and uh, really want to give a warm welcome. Uh, welcome, Rick, to the show. Thank you, Howie. Thank you for having me here. So, Rick, when I was six years old, what was I doing? I was trying to color inside the lines, learning how to read and write, eating glue. You were doing some other things at that age, and uh, it's kind of where it all started for you. Yeah, it certainly did. Uh, I was, uh, I very much idolized my dad uh, since I was a kid, and uh, at six years old, I started uh, hanging out with him on movie sets. So my first experience uh, with cameras was actually watching him work at MPO Videotronics in New York City, which was a huge commercial house. And any chance I got whenever I didn't have school, or I can play hooky from school, which was tough because I went to a private school. So it wasn't that easy. I would be with him on set. Do you remember what your first experience or even you had a job at that early age, your first one, didn't you? I did, uh, but it was kind of uh, impromptu, let's say. Uh, I was hanging out with dad and they were shooting a, a Kodak commercial where this little kid had to put a, basically had to take a photograph and put it into frame. So it was like a hand model type thing. And the, the talent couldn't do it. For some reason, he was shaky or I don't remember what the reason was, but they asked my dad if I could do it. And he said, yeah, sure. And I went in there as a hand model and, you know, took the pictures, put them in frame when I was told to. And um, that's the first $150 I ever made in the business. Talk a little bit more about, about your dad, because it's not just your dad. It also goes back to your grandfather. You're you're a third generation cameraman, if I, if I remember you saying. Yes. Yeah. My grandfather, uh, was a, uh, he was a sound man. He was a sound editor. He was an editor and he was a director of photography in Cuba. Uh, he started their um, government, I guess, after Castro took over, they created their own film industry. And my grandfather was a founder and he ran the camera department for, for Castro. My dad was staunchly anti-communist. So he had moved to um, New York City in 1955, trying to get into the American movie industry, which he did in 1962. He, he was accepted into the IA. He went to work at MPO Videotronics, which was the biggest um, commercial house in New York City. That's all they did. It was, a, it was a factory that just commercial after commercial after commercial. And he was the first assistant for Owen Roisman and for Gerald Hirschfeld, two of the uh, top 
cameraman I mean, ever. And um, in 1969, Jerry gave him, Jerry Hirschfeld gave my dad his first break as an operator uh, on a movie with Dick Van Dyke called Some Kind of a Nut. And he did so well that he became the primary operator for both Owen and for Jerry. Uh, he went on to do movies like The French Connection and The Exorcist with Owen. And, you know, multiple Billy Friedkin movies and you name it, he's, he had done it. And you, you had an opportunity to be on some of those sets. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My, I remember during The French Connection, it was bitterly cold. It was like one of the coldest uh, winters that New York had seen. And that was interesting to watch the chase and everything. I was like 10 years old at the time. Um, then he got a call for his second movie with Billy Friedkin, which was The Exorcist. Uh, I had no idea what an exorcist was. Uh, I liked to read all my dad's scripts, even though he didn't read them, I did. And I, if there was a book involved, I would read the book. Well, at 10 or 11 years old, I had no idea what an exorcist was. So uh, my first day on the set, I show up and Owen Roisman, the director of photography, he always called me by uh, my nickname, Kiki. So he says, hey, Kiki, you want to make 50 bucks? I mean, at 10 years old, $50 in New York. I mean, I was rich, right? So my dad gave me the nod. They put me in the bed where Linda Blair is supposed to be and they used me as a lighting stand. Uh, after a couple of hours of laying there, uh, they, you know, I had the little blue gown on just on top of my clothing for lighting purposes. And he tells me, okay, Kiki, you can get up now. Linda's here. Well, I look over and I see Linda Blair in full makeup. I levitated without the wires. It was the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. And was that, try not to laugh out loud or take up too much of our time. Was that, were you standing in, and I guess like the contraption that she had made, or were you just on the bed? Uh, I know there was some interesting like I was just on the bed. On what there. happened is uh, they had made a cup, not vacuum form. I don't think they had that back then, but it was a molded like plexiglass cup where Linda's head would go just to keep your neck from, uh, you know, spasming. So I, I was laying down in the bed, not in, not in any kind of gear, but they did put that little like light blue uh, covering on me just so that the lighting would match what they were going to do with her. And you said you knew at an early age, this is what you wanted to do. Absolutely. You wanted to be, be around cameras. Was there ever anything else? Yeah. Um, when I grew older, I always had this thing for military and for law enforcement. I was too young for Vietnam. And then, you know, I got one thing led to another. I ended up working uh, and not really joining, which I regret. I think I should have joined the military. Um, in 1982, I believe it was, or 1983, I had applied to the Metro-Dade Police Department and had gotten accepted. Uh, I went through the polygraph. I went through the psychological, all the battery of tests. And then uh, the phone rang. And that phone rang was for Miami Vice for the TV show. And I made a career move at that moment and didn't go into the department, which I think I should have because I'd be retired by now. But I took the Miami Vice job where I went on to be the first camera assistant for the first two years. Was that your first, your first, I guess, I guess solo job, like the first time you got a job on your own? Um, not working with your father? No, I actually, um, I really didn't work with my dad a lot at the very beginning of my career. I started when, as soon as I got out of high school, I went to work at Cinetech, which is today Cine Video Tech. Uh, Egon Stefan Jr., whose son also went on to carry on his legacy, took me under his wing. And that's where I learned camera maintenance, repair, how to run a camera department. I mean, you name it, it was a, a wealth of information. And Egon was tough. He was tough, but he was a professional and German, German too. 
to the bone. Um, and Began kind of became my second dad in the film industry. That's, uh, that's how much I learned from him. So when I get out of the, when I took my test for the IA, uh, an assistant by the name of Henry Harrison, who had also worked on The Deer Hunter with my dad as his assistant, uh, he's the one who gave me the test. And I, I joined the IA and I started working immediately without my dad. What was your first IA job? First IA job was a commercial uh, I don't remember what it was. My first TV job was a uh, pilot for a TV show called the Texas Rangers. It never made it anywhere. Um, we were in Texas. We were stationed in Austin. That's where that's where our home base. And then we shot all over, uh, you know, South Texas. Um, working with film? Okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> film, film. Yeah. So have you? You know, you've had a front row seat, of course, like many for the change from film to digital. Yeah. Seen a lot of changes, especially in how um, those that grew up in film transferred over to digital as opposed to, I guess, uh, 21st century filmmakers who have only known digital. Do you see um, how much has that impacted how people come up into business? First, I weep for those that didn't experience the film world and those days of those cameras like the BNCs. Uh, I mean, I learned how to operate cameras that from the 50s. BNCs, Mitchell R35s, every single Aeroflex model you can imagine, French cameras, German cameras, you name it, I've done it. Um, there's nothing sexier than a Panaflex with a, with a thousand foot mag and a five to one zoom on a Panahead. There's nothing sexier than that. Now these cameras today look like they're on life support. There's 3,000 cables and unless you're a computer technician, you can't work. I've actually said that sometimes it feels like they're a supercomputer that takes video. So once you started working, you worked on Miami Vice. Yes. And then what came after that? I've done, well, before Miami Vice, um, I had the opportunity to work for Jerry Hirschfeld and for Owen Roisman, who knew me since I was six years old. When I grew up, I was able to pull focus for them. And that was, uh, that was quite an honor for me at that point in my life, knowing them as long as I did to step up and do it for, you know, some of the top cameramen that ever worked, walked the earth. Uh, I mean, just masters of their craft. Obviously, um, you know, your father had a very big impact on you. You've mentioned some of the titans of the filmmaking industry. Who else inspired you or influenced you know, your work as a, ca as a cameraman? And this is something that I brought into the police department. I Let me start from the beginning. Uh, Billy Friedkin does an interview uh, where he speaks about my dad, about inducing the documentary style of shooting, which is what they did on the French Connection. Mm -hmm. French Connection was practically all handheld. So it was, and, and Billy says, like, he would give uh, Ricky Bravo the camera and just tell him to find the action. There was no rehearsals. It was just uh, uh, simple blocking. And that's what I have brought to the police department where I shoot live events and it's shot as a documentary style. Um, so I think that whole documentary uh, run and gun type of um, of influence has really kind of crept into my everyday. And that was at a time where handheld shots were being done on cameras that were not designed to be handheld. Correct. Yeah. The, the RE2Cs, uh, I mean, they were handheld cameras, but they were more for newsreel. They weren't real for motion picture. And there were no steady cameras back right. then. And you mentioned work with the police department. Your life has kind of come full circle in a way that you had applied to become a police officer. Then you, you know, started working in the industry in camera, but brought you back to where you've been for a while as a police cameraman and photographer. After Vice, um, I actually, I volunteered for a Saturday shoot. Uh, we had a charity police football game called the Pig Bowl. And our technical advisor said that they needed help manning a camera. So I went ahead on my only day off on Vice and I volunteered with them and they loved what I did. And they said, hey, if you ever have 
time, come on over and, you know, you can play. We have all the toys. Well, all the toys back then were, you know, VHS recorders that hang off your side, but we had helicopters and boats and all kinds of really cool stuff. So I did. Uh, they gave me a unit number, a radio and a police ID, and basically free reign. And I volunteered there for six years, putting in more hours than the people who were actually getting paid. And that's where I got my foot in. And again, I never wanted to turn this into a career. It just happened that way. And it's interesting. We've talked a lot of common, another common thread that's run through our episodes is there's no blueprint. There's no, you know, exact way to work in the industry. There's no way to kind of follow your passions. That's the same for everybody. Everybody does it. And you've been very fortunate to kind of really meld together a lot of the best of multiple worlds. Absolutely. Um, my, one of my favorite sayings is, you know how do you make God laugh is you tell him you have plans. And sure enough, I, I never planned for this. My dad was diagnosed with cancer in 1991. He died in 1992. They offered me a position that didn't exist. They actually created the position for me and they offered it to me. Um, I reevaluated my life because I had two daughters. And I remember as a kid growing up from airport to airport, hey, daddy's going to Japan for two weeks or he's going to Spain for four months. And I didn't want that for my kids. And um, I took the job with the department, took a $70,000 a year cut in pay in 1990s money. And it, I mean, the rest is history. Here I am 30 years later, uh, still loving what I do. I get up in the morning and I love going to work. And essentially what you said about, you know, being around the world and want to have a family. We've had other guests, uh, you know, especially uh, film professors that have the same process. You know, they've worked in the industry and it's a grind. Yeah. You're working almost 24 seven for years and years. And yet you make a choice, you know, do I want to just work like this my whole life or do I want to have a family? And that's where like um, being a professor and teaching film has kind of allowed them to have the best of both worlds. And you you talk about around the same time frame was when cops, I think, were starting to come on air. But what you do is very different than what we see on cops. Yeah, I actually shot for cops. And, um, and this is during my volunteer days, which is about 1990. And uh, I ended up working. I told them that I couldn't do it with Metro-Dade Police, which was my department where I volunteered. So they put me with the city of Miami. Well, we our jurisdictions overlap. So we ended up in a pursuit and it was a total mess. And then it ended up both being both departments. Now, the people in my department knew me. So they would, you know, they would usher me in with camera and all. And I'd have to say no, because it was a conflict of interest. I couldn't, I couldn't use that access that I had for cops. So I said, hey, I can't do this. So they put me up in Dania Beach in Broward. So there was no, uh, there was no overlap. But yeah, um, the stuff that I do with cops is a lot like what you see on the show, okay. but I do a lot with the tactical units. I do a lot with our special response team, which is our SWAT team. Um, I do a lot. I, I got state certified as a police diver all the way up to police dive team coordinator, which is the police equivalent of dive master. So not only have, do I shoot underwater, I shoot from helicopters. Uh, I mean, you you name it, in progress uh, calls. I do uh, liability video for like civil disturbances where we document our side of what happens as opposed to what the protesters say happened. And a lot of lawsuits have been thrown out because of my video where it basically showed that what they were saying did not happen. So it's a lot like cops, but... Uh, a lot more involved, actually. Very interesting. You mentioned underwater photography and camera work. What's that like? It's beautiful when you're doing it in on a reef, you know, in a, a beautiful area. But unfortunately, police diving is not like that. Police diving is in canals. It's in lakes where you can't see anything in front of your face. I mean, the camera has to be right up on. So 
it sounds exciting. Oh, you do police diving. That's great. You dive. Yeah. Well, it's not the diving that anybody would pay to do. At least not the Hudson River. Yeah. No. <laughs> and I have one of my students was an NYPD diver and he, I took him diving to the Keys where we had all these sharks and he said he'd rather be in the East River because a washing machine was never going to eat him. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a former Marine No, sniper, he was Air Force chance, a boom he? operator on a KC-135. Uh, I, I, I know a former <laughs> Marine sniper who's, who's a NYPD rescue diver. And, uh, and then it came full circle again with the Miami Vice movie. Yes. You did some work with that. We had, um, it just so happens that Michael Mann came back and with the Miami Vice movie with Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx, and we taught the actors how to shoot on our range. So we had the actors for like a month and a half on our on our police range. And Michael Mann's, um, his philosophy, which is phenomenal, that's why his films are as realistic as they do, is he wants them to learn and do it the right way. So we first taught them how to shoot real guns. And that respect of the real guns is what would give them the respect of the blank guns. Because when you hear blanks, you think they can't hurt you. And they're actually more dangerous because of that fact. You mm -hmm. think they can't hurt you. And there have been issues, you know, Brandon Lee, who got killed, uh, John Eric Hexham, who thought blanks couldn't hit, and he put the gun to his head with a forty-four Magnum blank and blew his brains out. So that is the that was a full circle is to be able to have a picture with me and Michael at the rap party for the first season of Vice and then have a picture with me and him in 2006. So yeah, it's definitely full circle. It was fun. And it's interesting to train, you know, nowadays John Wick and the videos of Keanu Reeves at the gun range training for John Wick. But I remember even seeing videos of De Niro, Pacino, and Val Kilmer training for Heat. And uh, obviously you know, a sad story, the rust set and everything that happened. But uh, do you think maybe, you know, indie filmmakers especially have gotten away from like that emphasis on safety? There's a couple of reasons that things like that happen. And one of them is cutting corners. Okay. Um, one of the things that Michael did, the technical advisor that trained them for heat is the same one that trained them for Miami Vice. And that's Mick Gould. Mick Gould was 10 years in the SAS, the special air services. And he, I mean, he was like five foot three on a good day, but a badass all the way across the board. And he's the one who taught them and taught Tom Cruise how to shoot for collateral. So when you see these moves and you see Keanu, Keanu Reeves is amazing. Talk about a badass in real life with a gun. And that translates to the screen. Now, I think one of the problems like what happened on the set of Rust is that you have all the cost cutting. Now you have somebody wearing two hats. You can't do that when something as important as guns are involved. You can't. It, you have to have somebody who is there, who is dedicated right. to that. Uh, I went through that on Miami Vice a lot. Every time a gun was being, I'm a gun guy. Okay. I I love guns. I've always have. Every time that a gun was going to be pointed anywhere near camera on the TV show, I would take the gun personally and I would inspect it before props even gave it to the actors because my dad and I were downrange, And I wanted to make sure that, A, the barrel was plugged and they were shooting crimp blanks and there was nothing else in the barrel, especially when you're shooting with a shotgun or a revolver, which is unfortunately not what happened, you know, on the set of Rust. And it's tragic. Such great stuff. So much more to talk about. We're going to take a quick break. But before that, Paradoxical Films and Cinevideotech are pleased to bring you Tell Your Story, a hands-on masterclass taught directly by Egon Stefan Jr. In this class, you will learn how to work with actual 16mm film, film cameras, as well as how to load and change magazines. Visit www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash tell your story for information on dates, 
pricing, and how to enroll. Hurry, as seats are limited and classes are filling up quickly. This is Howard Brand with the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. back today i am joined by rick bravo rick we have a lot of guests on our podcast who come from independent filmmaking a lot of time independent filmmaking it's one camera operator maybe you have an ac and camera operator is the dp also controlling the lighting does a lot you've been on massive sets parts of massive teams huge motion pictures huge multi-camera tv shows how does that even begin like a first day on a set like miami vice we walk in there you know big job what was that like well, on Vice, it was actually, everything fell into place pretty well because the majority of the crew was a local crew in here in Florida, actually Miami crew. Um, a lot of these people I had already worked with on commercials and other movies, second units and music videos. So we had a really good working relationship from the get-go. Now you show up on a movie, like I went to do a movie uh, in Texas with Dennis Quaid and, um, and Pam Greer, and it's a Texas crew, Florida camera crew, you know, sound man from California, and and there's a little bit of a feeling out period, but at the end of the day, we all know what we're doing. We're, you know, we're professionals. We like to think that we, we're professionals and uh, we all have our own areas of responsibility. So when you start looking at that and everyone's handling their own business, it really goes together really well. Um, so it, it's, especially on a really large production, it, it's fun to watch because it's like a well-oiled synchronous machine. Um, you can tell when a department is weak because it starts falling apart really quickly. In what ways? Um, a lot of waiting, a lot of retakes. Um, we had, unfortunately, we had a, a sound crew on, not on the TV, uh, on the pilot for Miami Vice, but on the actual uh, first season where the sound crew wasn't quite up to where it was supposed to be. And it was it was quite noticeable. And they ended up replacing uh, the sound mixer and the boom man with a uh, boom man from here, Jack Dalton Jr., who is, his dad was a sound man also, mm -hmm. and I had worked with, and uh, Michael Tromer from New York. And man, when they came, when they got here, everything went really smoothly. Generally, how many cameras are being used on most takes? Uh, most takes, depending on what we were doing, uh, we shot a lot of single camera. Uh, the two cameras when lighting allowed, uh, that was a lot more controlled than what we called the OCB, which was actually... Uh, uh, Greenwich Studios. Uh, the OCB stands for Organized Crime Bureau, which was the interior of their office. Uh, the original one was uh, somewhere in South on South River Drive, an old building, and then they built a facsimile in the uh, Greenwich Studios where flyaway walls and you know twelve foot ceilings, so for the lighting. Um, but we did we did sec uh, a lot of single camera, uh, two cameras when lighting allowed, like I said. Uh, then you have you know we go into stunts and uh, you know chases and stuff like that where we have uh, multiple cameras. We could be shooting as many as seven or eight cameras on an explosion. And how are the teams? Like, how is each camera staffed? Well, you have your your main, your main A camera and your B camera. Uh, other operators are brought in as needed. So they're day players. So if we have a C camera, D camera, then people are brought in and then you bring in a, a first. And depending back then, because you had to load film, you'd bring in uh, another second or maybe a loader to help with the... Uh, the loading of magazines, especially if we were doing a lot of uh, a lot of explosions, and especially high speed, where you burn through the film really quickly. So you're looking at a first for every camera, and maybe two to three seconds, depending on how big 
the the unit was. And sometimes we'd had second units too, because we'd send cameras out. If the actors weren't involved, we would send out a second unit where they'd be a director, a DP slash operator, and a first assistant just handling it and working it like a commercial, basically. So it's more of a skeleton crew. Is it a big difference between TV and, and movies when it comes to really the way camera teams operate? Or is it just... It's night and day. Night and day. It's brutal. It's, TV, episodic TV is brutal. Um, we were, I was working on Absence of Malice with Sidney Pollack directing. And we shot, I'll never forget this, we were shooting on a Saturday at the federal courthouse because that it was closed. And we had like a half a page of dialogue to do. And we, I mean, Sally Field and, and Paul Newman, and we got done at noon and he rapped. That's unheard of. I mean, Murphy's third law is that the work will expand to fill the time allotted. And if they're paying us for 10 hours, we're going to work those 10 hours, if not more. And Sydney was the type of person that's like, okay, we're done. What do you mean we're done? That's a wrap. Ow. On a Saturday, we got our Saturday back. Uh, Episodic TV is the other way around. We were doing 65, 67 setups a day. And those are camera moves. You know, eight and a half, nine pages of dialogue. I mean, it's brutal. And with company moves. So, you know, we'd work, it was supposed to be a five day a week, but since they're here in town, they're not paying us for Saturday. So we'd work what they call a fraterday, Friday into Saturday. And you'd start at 6 p.m. on Friday and pray for a sunrise to be able to get the hell out of there and go home. And then that killed the rest of your day. So you only had Sunday to, to uh, rest. Was it about one episode a week or? It was one episode supposedly every five days, five and a half days, but we actually ran over a little bit on some of them. So we'd end up seven days, sometimes doing pickup shots for the show that's airing this week. We'd be doing a pickup shot at the end of an 18 hour day to send Rush to the editors to be able to put it on to air. So, you know, it was supposed to be a five day, five and a half day, million dollar per episode. And we actually went over that quite a bit. And we talked earlier about, you know, the change from film to digital. I think that's something that almost everyone who's been on our podcast has gone through. As that, you would think digital would make the process easier, but has it made it easier or has it even complicated the process more? I think it's complicated it more. Um, There's a couple of things that I really, I, I have to do video because the department can't afford film. Okay. So I learned video the hard way. They gave me a camera and that's how I learned it. Uh, I'm a film guy. I grew up in film. The cameras I worked on were films. I never touched the video until I joined the department. So one of the things that I don't like is it's not as personal as film, okay? You have on the set of with a film camera, you have your camera operator, you have your first assistant who is attached at the hip to that camera, and you're pulling focus based on distances. You're looking at the distance. You're seeing that re- relation of the, the actor's movement to the camera's movement, and it's all a guessing game. And not really a guessing game as much as a calculated guess because you're taking your focus marks, but the rest of it, you're winging it. I think that art is getting lost. You have people pulling focus from another room on a monitor. You can't do that. It's impossible. And the reason I say it's impossible is because it's two dimensions. There's no way for you to feel that camera moving. There's no way for you to see the nuances of an actor moving and that relationship. And you're not on the set with the actor. So you're not learning their idiosyncrasies, their little tells when you know they're going to move. And you see it. Yeah, you see it on the monitor. You catch up, but when you catch up, it's already out of focus. And you see that a lot on TV now, and you see that a lot on movies where you see it buzz, and all of a sudden it gets sharp, and it goes out, and it comes back. I think it's tragic. And and I think it's good. You know, I know a lot of directors want to watch for monitors because you're looking at you know three, four cameras, focus pullers. But yes, it's important to see what the camera sees, but 
like anyone who's ever worked, watched, or been a part of a TV show or film, it's just as important to know what happens right before they get in the frame, what happens right after the frame. So you're not seeing that, like you said, can't anticipate it. One of the things that uh, that I loved about watching film cameramen do, first of all, anybody today with a laptop and a digital camera is a director cameraman. Okay, Video is very forgiving. Unless you're shooting with a cameraman's eye, with a filmmaker's eye, and you're using long lenses and compressed shots and, and real focus pulls, anybody can be a director cameraman nowadays. And it's obvious. You get on YouTube, you go on Instagram, you go on all these platforms, and everybody's got a video. I came from a business where you didn't know what you had until you saw it the next day in dailies. And I think that art is lost, unfortunately. And I think it's the, um, I don't know if deliberacy is a word, deliberateness of, you know, when you know you have unlimited takes, the only thing you got to worry about is running out of space on a card, you know, okay, you know, we only have 11 minutes of film, so much feet. So you have to be put more work into preparing your shots and getting it right. And I think that's also, um, it's a lost art. It's just, yeah, we'll do 10 takes. I'm sure one will be good. Yeah. And and that luxury didn't didn't always exist. No. And, and the other thing is that budget wise, film costs money. And not only does film cost money, but developing it costs money and printing it costs money. And like you're saying about being able to just roll and roll and roll, it's brutal on the camera operator if you're working handheld because you can just keep going until you run out of space and this guy is you know he's going to end up in in a wheelchair by the time he's 30 years old and i think i don't think that's fair because that doesn't will produce the best work somebody can do because you get to that point of exhaustion where it just it doesn't matter again i i grew up working with directors like sydney pollock and sydney lamette and billy friedkin where my dad was doing a, a take in uh, in mexico that were shooting sorcerer and that whole truck sequence, you got 14 cameras going and special effects and wind and rain. And the, this was the process. The process was cut. Ricky, how was it for you? It's good. Next, after one take. Now, like you say, it's like, let's throw something against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, if you you give enough monkeys, enough typewriters and enough time, they'll type every single book ever written. And that's kind of the what's going on here is the fact that you, yeah, I, if I do 30, Michael Cimino was notorious for that. My dad used to fall asleep behind the camera on Deer Hunter because he'd do 35, 60 takes. You're bound to get a nuance out of that at right. certain point, you know? So that that's, uh, again, that's a lost art of that filmmaking where you knew your camera operator said he had it. And the director had enough trust and liked the performance to be able to say, we're moving on. I just want to say on a side note, I love the fact that you keep referring to William Freakin as Billy. Just your friend. Yes. Yes. Your friend Billy. (laughs) Yeah, Billy. You know, one of the most like enamored. And, directors and, of our, and, and of Billy our, knew me as Kiki also. I, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And the other thing, it's with digital, I've heard a lot of those that, that worked with film, they've lost trust in their own eyes. Like they only look at what the camera sees where really, a, you know, a, I guess a, a true, you know, DP, cinematographer, you know, camera person, like they can look and see everything looks right. And then they put the camera on it as opposed to like working everything around the camera. Well, the true lighting cameraman and I use that term very specifically, lighting cameraman, like an Owen Roisman, like a Jerry Hirschfeld, would go on a set and with a contrast glass that today's youth has no idea what a contrast glass is and be able to see a scene and know what lens to ask for 
at least for the beginning blocking. And all the lighting is done outside of the camera and then double-checked inside the camera. And that's why some of these panoflexes have built-in contrast glasses because once the operator or the DP gets behind the camera, you can see it. Um, one of the things that I like to do when I shoot is I already have an idea of what I want in my mind as far as where I'm going to compress a shot. I, I know what my 600 is going to do, my 800 is going to do, what my... 24 is going to do. So I've already have an idea what I want before I choose a lens. And that's uh, something that I learned by doing. And you learn like, what, again, when I was pulling focus, I never used the monitor ever, not even to see what the scene was like. I knew what my field of view was. I knew when an actor was going to come in and out of a scene or out of the, out of the lens shot and be able to time my focus to that. So it's just more about knowing your equipment and the, the latitude that you have and the limitations. And nowadays it's, you know, again, it's like grenade lighting, <laughs> you know, just throw light at it and it will tweak it in post. You gave a lot of good reasons, but what would you say to a, a young, you know, DP or cinematographer, camera operator who says, to you, you know, why should I bother learning film? You know, it's just going to be digital from now on. It's like everything else. You need to know the basics. And I think the more you learn, and that's one of the things that I that I always did when I was coming up in the business, I always paid attention. I paid attention to other people's jobs. Not only did I know the camera work, but I paid attention to what the sound man did, how he did it, and why he did it. I paid attention to the grips, how they rigged, why they rigged. And that has served me well because when I get on a set, and especially with the police department, I've had to be a one-man band. So I can do special effects. I've I've created car fires that weren't car fires, that looked like car fires with a smoke machine, rubber cement, and a pan under a hood. Uh, and I learned that from paying attention. And that's why I think that they should learn film. They should learn the characteristics of light and what the limitations are. Um, I, I think it's a lost art. And I, I would really hope, and it's not going to happen because it's not cost effective. And you need a, a lot more crew. You need a lot more money. And I, I don't see it going back to film, at least not mainstream like the way, it, the, the way it was. But I think everyone should learn at least those fundamentals of lighting. It's so important to the craft, if not just for what you're doing, but just to keep it alive. You mentioned directors, one take, good. Again, not to keep bashing digital on the head. Should good directors, good cinematographers have a good enough move on mentality or like strive for, you know, you know, we can get a better next day. You know, it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. And that's where when, you know, sometimes when I produced or, or AD'd, it's so hard trying to like figure out what we're really striving for. I've worked with directors, especially commercial directors, where, you know, you sit there and you have a monitor, video playback, and then you have 12 clients and nobody can make up their minds what they like. One guy liked the way the orange juice was poured. The other one doesn't. This one said it's perfect, but they had cut the uh, actress's head off in the frame. So that wasn't good, but they loved the orange juice. I, I call it a camel. Camel is a horse that was built by committee. That's why it's all screwed up. Okay, and that's what happens with these with the monitors is that you have the actor, you have the director, you have the client, the producer. Everybody has an opinion on it. Um, yeah, everyone's looking at different things, and and again, you this is where I was going. Uh, I've worked with commercial directors that do twenty five takes looking for a nuance. I mean, this is for a thirty second commercial on you know Pampers, and and this is in the film days. So imagine now. Imagine now that you have that latitude of just rolling and rolling and rolling, and it's not costing you any more money. Yeah. It, it's brutal on the crew. Well, and it's interesting. Yes, it's not costing any more money 
perception wise, right. but but it is uh, it 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 will come around. You know, it's either going to cost money in the extra time it takes to log and edit things. But at the end of the day, the the money that counts is the money on set. Nobody sees that back end cost. I think I know what your answer is going to be to this, but uh, what do you think your father would say if he was alive today about, you know, all the digital and where things are going? He'd hate it. (laughs) (laughs) He would, he would absolutely hate it. I, I think the only time he ever touched a video camera was when he helped me out on a project for the police department. I had him out as a second camera and he had no idea what to do with the damn thing. So I had to set it up, put it on the head and then have him just operate. And, you know, some of these great directors, do you think they would have made the move to digital had they had they still been alive or were they would have stuck with film? Um, I think that the the old school great directors and DPs would have, well the DPs you kind of have to change with the you know with the the trend. Um, I think directors old school directors would probably would have stayed with film because there's no matter what this video stuff is some of it is gorgeous, but at the end of the day film is film. And uh, Egon Stefan taught me a saying and and this is when video was starting. It says, film is made of silver, video is made of rust. Interesting. The iron oxide. Great spot for us to take another break. But before that, we would like to thank partners that helped make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who's been a mainstay of the film industry since 1968, providing equipment, support, and training. M2 Productions, who provides directing, writing, and assistant director services. And ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment. This is Howard Brand. You're listening to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. And we are back with cameraman Rick Bravo. Rick talked a lot about working movies, working TV shows, some of the other things you've done. Really want to bring it back now to what has been your main career over the last 36 years, which is uh, working working with the police department. Tell me more about that. Tell me what those days are like. Tell me really what, what your job is and what our listeners can learn learn more about it. I started with the police department as a, a citizen volunteer, basically, in 1986. Between movies, commercials, you know, whenever I was doing second units, or doing uh, music videos. If I wasn't working my paid job, I was working for free for the department. And it was tremendous because I had uh, access to all kinds of toys. I mean, I'd make a, a phone call, say, I need three helicopters. And they'd tell me when and where. You know, it, it was it, it was really a really symbiotic relationship that I built up with them. One of the things that happened is they, they had two guys there that ran the teletraining section, which is what it was called at the time. Uh, and they were just doing talking heads, studio type stuff, you know, very newsy looking, but no field work, no, nothing like that. So here I am fresh off Miami Vice and I'm coming in, you know, I'm young, I'm 20, 28 years old or something like that. And I'm for better, uh, for lack of a better term, full of piss and vinegar and wanting to make mini movies. And that's what I started doing for the department. I started doing, employing uh, what I knew, what I had brought from the movie industry into a realm that had never seen something like that for their production. Um, so that built over the years. And like I said, I volunteered uh, in 1992. I was offered the position and I took it. So uh, be- besides the six years of volunteer work, I now I'm going on my no, 32nd or 33rd year with a department and looking to retire within a couple of years. Uh, my days are very event driven. Uh, I can do all kinds of things. We do a segment called Meet Your Major 
uh, through our media relations and social media uh, unit where we humanize the police officer, you know, the, the majors of the districts that people don't usually get to meet. We talk about, they, or better yet, they talk about their likes, their dislikes, their favorite foods, what their family life is like. Um, so we, we do a lot of that. Uh, we document uh, a lot of the training for training purposes, which is huge because one of the things that they like to do is once they have training in place is to be able to document it and then we turn it into a, a usable package for future training where they can play it at the classes. Uh, we do, I've done hundreds of search warrants, high risk search warrants with the special response team, which is the equivalent of a SWAT team. It's our SWAT team. Uh, a lot of that is for documentation and also for uh, training purposes because the, my camera doesn't blink and I tend to shoot very documentary like. So one of the things that happens, again, every one of these operators have an area of responsibility. And that's where their focus is. You have your guy who's, you know, you have your entry team, you have your guys who are holding point, uh, they're holding security on the perimeters. And one of the things that they like to do is come back and dissect the warrant and use that as a training tool. A lot of underwater work, a lot of time, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hours inside helicopters doing helicopter work. It's just, it is so diverse that, again, I've said this before, I love getting up and going to work. You know, it's one of those things that even after 36 years, it doesn't get old for me. And I think that is, I mean, that's a reward in itself. Besides the paycheck. <laughs> it always helps. Yeah. Do you have a team or are you pretty much a one-man operation? We have a unit, one supervisor, and then three of us under the same uh, classification. Uh, my partner, my other half that does, doesn't do the same amount of tactical work that I do, doesn't do the underwater and does very limited helicopter, and the other one's more of a producer. So really the, the one who does the, the bulk of the actual police field work is myself. And is that... Is it something that is common in larger police departments around the country? Is it something that more police departments should have, that they should be creating these types of um, units and teams, their department? When I started in this unit, I became a, a charter member and part of the board of directors of the Law Enforcement Video Association, which is an international training training organization. Some of the major departments, our biggest competitor, for lack of a better term, would be like Niagara Regional, uh, LAPD, have huge video units because they have a lot of resources out there being in Hollywood. Uh, Niagara Regional and, and Calgary had incredible teams of, I mean, you see, you watch their productions and they, we're talking about TV quality. So I was bringing that and that was my major competitor when it came to the international awards. Um, so you have a lot of departments that started building smaller teams and they would come to me because I'm the one who did all the critical incident stuff. So we have a lot of smaller departments that started um, building these these video units and getting more into the actual police line instead of just the training aspect of it. And I guess if there's one positive for the move to digital is it's uh, it's made having that kind of having a team like that available for smaller departments more accessible. Absolutely. And again, when I started doing this, we, I was running and chasing these guys. Where, besides wearing another 50 pounds worth of gear, I, I'm humping a 40-pound beta cam, you know, chasing SWAT teams and tactical narcotics guys and robbery detectives. Nowadays, with, uh, you know, the advent of DSLRs and all these little gimbal stabilized cameras, I mean, it's amazing. And I've gotten to the point where, yeah, we have the bigger cameras, but we don't use them because the quality in these digital cameras for what we're doing 
again, I can shoot 8K, but I don't have the need for it because my stuff is really going to be seen on a computer screen. So yeah, I think with the advent of that, it becomes more cost effective. And now a lot, the biggest thing is now is the social media units. Now you have, every department has a social media unit. A perfect example besides ours is the city of Miami. They do great work. And you look at it and and you go like, you know, there's some, some creative people out there that are that are doing this. Yeah. It's always been important, but definitely over, over the last few years, community relations has just become so important to, to police work, getting out there with the community. So I'm sure there's, like you said, it goes, it goes both ways. There's kind of, I I guess the exciting part of it, but then there's also the you know man on the street type of work that's important. I'm a veteran, Marine Corps veteran. My wife's an Army veteran. Whenever we watch movies and TV shows, we are critiquing every little military thing from a uniform to what they're doing. Is it impossible for you to watch a movie or TV show about police that you did not film just because you're like critiquing everything? Yeah, I, I would say that that's a bit of a curse, not only from that side, but from the technical film side, you know, and I'm looking for reflections and boom shadows and, you know, and just focus cues that are missed. But yeah, when it comes to tactics, uh, I'm very up on tactics because I do talk about 36 years with SWAT teams and, you know, so I, I'm looking at the way building searches are conducted or, or is that sight on that rifle, that optic is backwards, you know? And yeah, my it, my wife hates it because I'll pause and go, oh, can you believe they did that? And she goes, did what? <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it, it's a bit of a curse, but by the same token, it it's kind of fun to, to yeah. pick it apart, especially when you see, man, they're spending all this money on this show and they, you think they'd give the technical advisor another 50 bucks to, to at least know what he's doing. Yeah, or at least have a technical advisor. Or at least have a technical... I was just watching a show that was really go good called uh, SEAL Team. They're ta I mean, it's amazing. And then I look at a Neotech and it's backwards. It's like that's mm -hmm. the, the most common optic on any rifle and to have it on backwards is like, it's unforgivable. Mm -hmm. And and little things like we'll be watching. I'll be I'll be like, uh, look, they 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 broke the one eighty rule. Yeah. I feel like, what are you talking about? So it's like, I'll explain later. Yeah, yeah. the wrong screen <laughs> direction. Wrong screen yeah, direction. they're both looking right to left. Who are they talking to? Yeah. And you also you do some other stuff on the side. You do some photography as well. Talk about that because that's another kind of unique area. I love shooting things that move fast, uh, and I like shooting things that don't move fast. Uh, as far as moving fast, airplanes, uh, air shows, birds, migratory birds, uh, I just love that whole very fast action thing. Um, the On the complete pendul pendulum swing on that is astrophotography. Uh, I don't mind going down to the Keys. I spent two weeks in Colorado. Just It was a vacation that wasn't a vacation because I was based in Colorado Springs and I would drive five hours to a location and sit there all night long waiting for the Milky Way to appear and, you know, doing that and then coming back and putting them together in composites. I find it really relaxing. I, I go out there, I'll put some nice music on and I'll just sit there under the stars and wait for things to happen. So yeah, the astrophotography part. And then I have the other side of it, which is the really fast. I don't do weddings. <laughs> I don't do bar mitzvahs. I I just don't like shooting people. If I shoot people, it's going to be more of a candid thing. I like shooting candids. Um, I don't like doing studio photography, but, you know, nature, wildlife, and astro to me are just so much fun. It's interesting, interesting you say that because wasn't 
one of yours, your dad started and was a wedding photographer. Yeah, when my dad came here from uh, from Cuba, he was wedding. Uh, I still have the the four by five speed graphic that he used. I, I gave it to my daughter who has it in Chicago now at her house, uh, and I have pictures of him with it. And I also have my grandfather's IMO which is a 35 millimeter wind-up camera that my dad also used as a photojournalist. I have a picture of my dad in the uh, 1960 World Series with Roberto Clemente when he's holding that camera, and I, I still own that camera. So, yeah, my dad started as a wedding photographer, and uh, he had a darkroom set up in the only bathroom we had in the apartment in New York. So, you know, we had to time our bathroom breaks based on when dad was developing or enlarging. Uh, he did that. He worked as a developer. I remember seeing something... Uh, where he was applying for jobs. I think it was for unemployment back then. And how much did you make a week? It was something like $28 a week. You know, it's like crazy. We blow that on a drink nowadays in South Beach, <laughs> you know? Uh, so yeah, he did start that way. And he was very good. He was good at fixing things. He, I remember um, it, I remember him actually showing it to me, but there was a, a bride that had one eye that wasn't looking in the right direction and he fixed it in post. And we're talking about, you know, a Bressler and larger and a dark room, uh, four, four by five. So yeah. And then he also was a photojournalist uh, running a camera for Channel 12 in Havana, Cuba, and working in New York. So he, he did that. He also covered sports. Like I said, he uh, he covered a, a lot of this stuff at Yankee Stadium. It's got to be an interesting uh, interesting paradox You know, when you mention how your grandfather worked for like like the Castro regime, you know, which I'm sure was very, very restricted like very controlled you know what he could do and now like i think the idea it's going to be really eye-opening to people hearing that that you know a large police department like M- mpd allow all the all these things to be be photographed and recorded i also think you know back to my wife you know she deployed to iraq as a historian and their job was to record like the official history of what's going on just how important is it to have you know just that accurate history for lawsuits, for training, or just for in 50 years from now to be able to look back on? What I look, um, our department, I don't think has really had a historian. So it's very difficult for me to find anything that I didn't shoot myself. Uh, it's funny because I just found a treasure trove of VHS tapes of SWAT team warrants that I did in the 80s and 90s that I'm transferring now to save it for posterity because we don't have that. Um, there's never been someone who, that is their thing. It's like, okay, you are going to compile a history of the department. You know, there's some old black and white pictures, but nothing concise and not in under one roof. So just like in my family, I'm the historian. Mm-hmm. I'm the one who has all the old pictures. I'm the one who catalogs them, uh, my dad's work, my grandfather's work. I'm the one who my family comes to and says, hey, do you have any pictures of dad doing this? And, and yeah, or I'll say, I'll give them a, I gave my brother a, a drive with all of dad's movies broken down. And, you know, it, it's actually pretty cool. Uh, I think now the department is a little bit more into that because, again, back then it was a tape medium. So very bulky, very difficult. We went from three quarter. Uh, actually, yeah, we went from three quarter to VHS to beta, beta cam, not beta max, and then VHS, everything was saved on VHS and and beta max. Well, those tapes deteriorated. So we lost 30 years worth of archival footage. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to save all these VHS tapes that are being brought to me. Our SWAT, our SRT just brought me three boxes of VHS tapes that I'm one at a time putting on digital 
and then going back in there and saving the clips that are that are pertinent. So it's it's kind of cool to see the the progression of equipment and manpower and the way things are done. Uh, it's quite eye opening, you know. And and again, it's like my transition from film to video. I was there in the department in the eighties, and now I'm seeing it now in the two thousands. You know, which is which is quite a quite a historic. Uh, <laughs> Spread exactly, uh, and you mentioned you know you're possibly retiring yes. in the next couple of years. God willing, if you have any say in uh, selecting a replacement for you, what are you looking for in someone that that would step into that position? I would like to see somebody that had the fire that I had and the fire that I still have that wants to get involved, not just somebody who wants to cash a paycheck. I started this job making $28,000 a year, okay? coming from the film industry to making that. And I'm not an overtime employee. I'm a salaried employee. I'm making good money now, 36 years later, or 30 years later, at great benefits. you know. And uh, But I'd, I'd like to see somebody with that fire that wants to do really, really well and not just show up and, and cash a paycheck. Is there anything... Over the last 36 years, uh, and I'm sure there's been many, but one thing that really stands out, like, I'm so lucky to have been able to have been here to capture it, or thank goodness I captured it, or imagine what would have happened if I didn't capture this. Yeah, there have been a lot of those. Uh, There's a lot of times where my footage has been used to exonerate police officers, and not only our police officers, but also federal officers. Uh, There was one case where an FDLE, or Florida Department of Law Enforcement agent, was accused of stomping a somebody's head. And that's what the the subject said. Uh, Well, what the subject didn't know is that I was videotaping the whole thing. And when I got called to testify for their internal affairs, and they asked me, Mr. Bravo, what are you seeing in that video? I go, well, I'm seeing the same thing you're seeing. I see the agent trying to step around him and not obviously trying not to step on the guy when the guy said that he had been stomped on. And so that's very rewarding when something like that happens. Uh, Also, when we had the FTAA here, the Free Trade Area of the Americas, uh, the group that got arrested in front of the state attorney's office, they said that we had not read a dispersal order, that if we read it, they couldn't hear it because of the uh, chanting, uh, that they didn't give them the, um, the right amount of time. Well, what happened was I videotaped the whole thing and there was no chanting. The dispersal order was being read over a bullhorn. They were 30 feet from us. And when you look at the time code that can't be changed, they were given two minutes, and at two minutes, the arrest order was given. So all those lawsuits were thrown out. And the same thing happened in Pittsburgh. I got deployed with a rapid deployment force to Pittsburgh uh, to back up Pitt- Pittsburgh PD for the uh, G20 in 2009. Same thing happened there with my footage. It was used to exonerate. So that liability video is, is huge when it comes to you know being able to dispute the claims that are being made in court. That's, that's got to make you feel good. Yeah. And and it goes back to some other things we talked about that when it comes to video, having the complete picture, not just selectively choosing, you know, being able to see everything that happened before, everything that happened after. I know you're going to miss it yeah. <laughs> eventually. Do you think you're still going to be involved though somehow? Never say never. <laughs> uh, you know, I keep threatening them that I'll reapply for the position and start all over again. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, I would like to some, somehow stay connected. I have such a great love for the department and for what I do. And I've met and I have friendships like that I can't even describe how close they are. Uh, when you share that kind of experience with somebody else, and you as a soldier should know about this. <coughs> yeah. wait, wait, hold on. Back up. 
as a Marine. As a Marine, sorry. Pardon me. Could you get the crayons from the car, please? Ooh, snacks. <laughs> Snack time? You know that, and I understand why soldiers don't speak about their war experience, because unless you've experienced it, you can't, you can't understand it. It's a special bond. And again, I've made friendships that are lifelong. I will miss it, and I will always be attuned to what's going on with my department. And even if I move out of Florida, I still will be. So, yeah, I keep threatening to, like I said, I, I keep threatening to say, I, I, I might reapply. And they're going, oh, no, not again. <laughs> I can't deal with another 30 years of you. <laughs> awesome. We're going to take one more quick break, and we'll be back to conclude this episode. To our listeners, if you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform and giving us a rating. And then head over to our online store at paradoxicalfilms.com forward slash shop, where you can purchase Cinema Pathway gear including t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. Last of all, be sure to also follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. We'll be right back. I'm Howard Brand, and we are talking today with Rick Bravo. Rick, we talked a lot about what you've done, talked about what you know, you're doing currently, what's on the near horizon for you, but uh, really, what's next after that? As little as possible. I've been working since I'm 13 years old, so uh, I think it's time to take a little bit of time for myself. Maybe buy a small used boat, you know, tour around the bay, and uh, go out to take more pictures. Definitely continuing the, the night photography? Yeah, definitely continue the night photography, nature photography. Yeah, I, for, yeah, nature photography. Yeah, all, all that, to me, is, uh, is very rewarding. Pat, you know, still want to pass on your knowledge, though, to future camera operators, cameramen? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've li- I've been in contact with Egon Stefan Jr. from Cine Videotech. Uh, he's been putting on workshops, and I'd like to come out and just share what I know, because it, it's not fair to keep it to yourself, and it's good to be able to pass that torch along to you know future filmmakers that may not have the opportunity to learn what it is to work film as opposed to today's video uh, environment. And one thing I, I want to ask you about, you've worked... All over the place. You know, your father's worked all over the place. You know, Rolodex of famous directors, producers. But but you've you've stayed committed to, to South Florida as your home. Do you think there's a chance the film industry could come back here? I think given the resources that we have, it's a shame that we don't have it the way it's supposed to be. Uh, I think if we, if the governor would bring back the tax incentives, would bring back a lot of production. I mean, listen, we've got perfect weather year round, basically, and except for the occasional rainstorm or hurricane, just the, the visuals are, are spectacular down here. And unfortunately, the cutting of these tax incentives has pushed everything up to Georgia and more film-friendly dates, which I don't understand the mentality behind it. I really don't. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, I got you. You know, I grew up in New Jersey. You, know, you growing up in New York, and New York always saw you know everyone going to Atlantic City. Well, New York has their own their their own movie. Yeah, that, that's all they do with money wise. Like with casinos, you know, New York finally got wise and you know brought gambling into the state. Movies are saying you know Florida is seeing money for filmmaking go to our neighbor and going to other places, even when they, the setting is Florida. You know, they're filming in the Carolinas, they're filming in well. It's Gulf sad States. because I've I have people that came up with me in the business that stayed in the business that 
that now have had to relocate to another state because there's no work here. And that's that's a shame. You've done a lot of things and I think you've definitely have, have left an impact on uh, on people. Are there any you know causes? Are there any organizations you're involved with or anything that you really want to want to talk about? Yeah, there's um, one of the charities. We're trying to get together a um, 40th reunion for Miami Vice here in next year. And one of the things that I'm trying to work on is to whatever proceeds from that that we make on you know on top of whatever the expenses are is for it to go to the police officer assistance trust also known as POAT uh, it's an organization that takes care of officers who have either had catastrophic events in their lives, whether they be medical or you name it. Once the insurance runs out, the POAT comes in and takes over. Uh, I've been involved with them since my volunteer days, and I do as much as I can for them because it it is such an incredibly worthwhile organization. That sounds great. And a a Miami Vice 43 union sounds like it could be a lot lot of fun. We already have Michael Talbot committed. Uh, I spoke to Michael. uh, As a matter of fact, I spoke to Michael yesterday. And uh, there are some movers and shakers that are actually reaching out and see maybe Universal gets involved because it, it would make sense. You know, we have a we have a host hotel, the Avalon Hotel down on the beach. Hmm. And may, maybe that could uh, help lure some stuff back to Florida. I would certainly hope so. I mean, it, listen, South Beach, we painted South Beach. Beach didn't look like that. We painted it for the episode. So that's, it was built by Vice. Where can our listeners find you? Like where can, can they follow you on social media and learn, learn more about you? Um, well, I've got a couple of, I have an Instagram that's Rick underscore bravo one uh that's my instagram and then i don't really keep a personal page but what i do have is a miami vice page where you can not not only see my work on vice but my dad's work on vice and also i showcase it i call it ricky's road to vice which is my dad's journey to be able to get on miami vice and that includes all the movies that he's worked on and that's miami vice ocb or organized crime bureau and it's a private group uh, mentioned that you heard it here <laughs> and get 50% off. But yeah, that's those are the two places. Is there anything you haven't done that you still want to do? I can't really think of anything. I mean, I've, I've been blessed. I've been blessed. I've done between the movie industry and my police career. I have done things that people would pay arms and legs for. And I can't imagine too many things that are left for me to do. I mean, short of going up in, into space. There's one. Never, I was say, a, never say never. I was a huge uh, space fan. You know, I mean, I remember at age 10 when they walked on the moon. And that's, I think that's the only thing left for me. Well, supposedly the moon landing was fake, but it was shot, oh, that's what they but, say. But it was shot by Stanley Kubrick. And it was shot really well. And he's such a, <laughs> such a perfectionist, he insisted on shooting it on location. So they yeah, actually, on the moon. They yes. shot it on the moon. If you had a give your younger self any advice, what would it be? I'm not sure. Um, Because let things happen. Because like I said, a lot of this wasn't scripted. I knew what I wanted to do for a living only because I kind of fell into it. And then the way it worked out with the police department was, it wasn't a a concerted effort. It's just let it ride. When you think back, we've talked a little bit about your work on shows, your work on movies. What are some things that just really stand out to you just as great experiences? I mean, mean, I'm sure there's thousands of them, but are there any that really stand out? I've worked with some of the most incredible actors that have ever graced the stage. And I've never been starstruck. I mean, I've worked with Paul Newman, Pacino, you, you name it. 
And to me, they've always been just regular people. Um, I did meet my hero, which was Mickey Mantle, uh, shooting a commercial on uh, on Key Biscayne, and he was my childhood hero. And so that was to me was was huge. I think the most rewarding, besides my police career, was my time on Miami Vice. I was a young kid saddled with a huge responsibility of running a million dollar a week camera crew on that show. I was able to pull it off, and to me, the challenge because it was a tough job. Not only were the hours grueling, but we had, uh, technically, it was a very difficult uh, job for me being the focus puller on it. So to me, that is one of the most rewarding things that I can look back on. And now, especially now with the advent of Blu-ray, is to be able to watch this show because the last time I watched this show was 40 years ago on VHS, recorded at SLP. So now I'm looking at things and I'm like, man, you know, we actually did pretty damn good work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> looking looking back and on it. It. It, was, it was ahead of its time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and it was shot like, it was shot like a film. Right. It was shot like a film. It wasn't shot like episodic TV where it was grenade lighting. Just throw a light at it and as long as you can see the faces, we're good. It was shot like a film. And, you know, we were shooting at uh, levels of light that were unheard of for TV. We were shooting at four foot candles, which is nothing. Wide open, long lenses. Um, so it, it, I think that's my most rewarding in the film industry, looking back on it. You mentioned Egon a lot. Egon, you know, uh, uh, we call him a, a friend of the podcast. You know, both of you came up very similar ways. Your father's running industry. And you really learned your craft through an apprenticeship on hands, learning like that. And we've talked a lot, you know, that type of learning through film school, through formal training. When you go through an apprenticeship, you know, you become an apprentice, a journeyman, and really learn it over time. It's something that's been lost that I think today people just want to rush through and learn everything as quick as they can and jump, you know, from A to Z without going through the other 24 letters. What what can be done about that? That's known as paying your dues. Okay. Um, I remember back then when $2,000 a week was a lot of money and a second assistant on the movie was making 2000 plus dollars a week and I was making 50 and that was pulled by the camera crew for me to clean filters, clean boxes and fetch their hamburgers from the caterer while they played poker on the camera truck. I think it it has been lost. Um, the whole thing, I mean, you can go to film school. Film school, to a certain extent, is good. Theory is good. But at the end of the day, you're going to learn how to make movies by making movies. Um, they used to send me uh, apprentices uh, from from the, the local in Chicago. I shot a movie in Chicago. And they would send me these film students. And the first thing, I had a stool with four legs and one was short, so it was wobbly. And they'd show up with their backpacks. I go, did you bring your books? Yes, thank you. Let me have, I'd look at their books and I'd put one under the stool to level it out. I go, that's what the book is for. Now you're going to learn how to make movies. And that's the way you learn how to make movies. Because it's like police work. And you, they teach you in the academy, but until you start doing it, that's when you really learn how to do the police work. And the same thing with film school. You learn the theory, but then the hands-on practical is where you're going to learn. And from watching other people do it and learning from other people. And I think that's the important thing that it's a lot more than just picking up a camera or nowadays picking up your phone and just saying, I'm I'm a DP, I'm a director, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put shoot it on a this. business card. Exactly, we, we've talked about, you know, there's really no definition of a filmmaker or a storyteller. It's just, you know, if you wanna call yourself a filmmaker, there's, there's no filmmaker police. Aside from the legacy you're already gonna leave with the Miami-Dade Police Department, what else do you wanna leave behind? with them for like the future people in your job? I would like to leave a legacy that whoever comes after me, I want them to be better. I want them to be better and do better work than I did. 
is what I want to leave. I don't want somebody who is just going to try to achieve or just stop at that, but I want them to succeed past that. Is there any director cinematographer today that you would still jump at the chance to work with alive? Alive, yeah, I, I was going to say. I kind of like the quirkiness of Tarantino. I don't know. He's kind of twisted in in a way I'm kind of twisted too. You know, I, I enjoy the things that he brings to the screen. I think I would like to work with him. And he shoots on film. And he shoots on film. Yeah, exactly. Just as a, do I, I dare call you more of a traditionalist when it comes to movies and films, the streaming versus movie theater type of films. You began in the days when films were made for theaters. Right. And now all that's changed. What, what are your thoughts? I don't go to theaters much because I think people ruin it, okay? Texting, phones. I And listen, people are crazy. I don't want to get into a shooting or, or into a fist fight over some idiot. That I'd rather watch them on my you know 100-inch TV at home with a sound system. Uh, the last movie I went to see, and I had to see that movie like that, was Top Gun Maverick. That movie has to be seen on a big screen with a real sound system. Really traditionally, I used to like to go to the theater, but again, when uh, all the cell phones and all that started, it, it ruined it. It's interesting you bring up Top Gun Maverick as, as a camera person. Uh, I was shocked that the cinematography didn't get more recognition because to me, it's un, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen It was amazing. without CGI. It was amazing. I mean, that whole camera setup, three camera setup they did in the cockpit of the FA-18s is insane. And the fact that these actors not only had to operate the cameras, just turn them on and off, but they, had, they were in charge of their own lighting. So they had to talk to Jet in to where they knew the, the sun was going to be and then direct themselves. I, that, this, I'm not a... Tom Cruise, I, sometimes I can't get past that whole craziness. I, I think he should have gotten the, the nod as best actor on that. His commitment to his craft yes. cannot be questioned. And, and even with the, the next Mission Impossible, when he rides a motorcycle off a mountain and then jumps off the motorcycle and parachutes. Here's a guy whose role says he's supposed to fly a helicopter. And he goes out and learns how to fly a helicopter and flies a helicopter with no co-pilot. Okay, we're talking about a four and a half million dollar A-star, the same things that we fly in the police department. And this guy, I mean, come on, you, you got you to gotta hand it to Absolutely. him. Absolutely. Yeah. Aside from Tapka Maverick, are there any other like recent films you saw from, I guess, a cinematographer's point of view that that's worth that you think are worth seeing? You know, it's funny because I watch a lot of uh, like Apple TV and, and the stuff that's coming out on these independent networks for, I guess, the way to say it. The quality of cinematography is unbelievable. I mean, there I, there isn't one show I can specify because there's so many and they are really shot beautifully and you can tell that they've spent money on them. So there's really, a, there's too many to name, but God, they're doing some great work. Have they taken it too far with CGI? Yeah, I I guess. But at the end of the day, it's about suspension of disbelief. So listen, if they could do it and I don't notice it, go for it. <laughs> Any last words or advice to future cinematographers, DPs, cameramen? I would say stick with your craft. Stay true to your craft. Don't take shortcuts. And learn the traditions. Learn what it was to do film when it was film. And I think that's going to make them a better rounded, I think just a better rounded person overall. Great. This has been a extraordinarily eye-opening. I love hearing your stories. I would be happy to have you back Thank you. on the podcast at any time <laughs> to continue talking about things. I hope we are able to talk even more offline about this. And I just uh, really, really want to thank you again for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. This is a Howard Brand with the Cinema Pathway Podcast. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway Podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. 
Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette Desan, along with associate producer Victor Ferreira and executive producer Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website at www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you can send any comments, suggestions, or feedback for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to join us for our next episode where we will continue to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway podcast. This is the Cinema Pathway podcast. We'll see you next time. Lights out.